welcome back to Logically Faithful. This is Keldun Swice, your host. I have a very special guest today. Uh, he is an author whose books have influenced me profoundly. Uh, specifically, one of the major books, considered one of the best-selling books of all time in Christian literature, The More Than a Carpenter, uh, was done by his father, and of course, he recently he uh, updated that one. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Caldun, thanks for having me on for your kind words about uh, the book. That's neat to hear. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to engage with you on these topics. Now, you're currently Associate Professor in Christian Apologetics at Biola. Uh, That's correct. Yes. And you've written a multitude of literature and books on, and of course, you're blogging on it and things of that nature. I could go through all of them, but let me, let me ask for your heart in the matter. Why do you still do what you do in this process? You know, it's interesting you asked me that because I was just working on a blog about how dark our culture is kind of becoming with its embrace of infanticide and so many other immoral beliefs that make us really no different from ancient pagan Rome. Mm -hmm. And as I was just thinking about it, one of the things that motivated me is I said, you know what, I hear sad things that are disheartening like this, and it just reminds me why I'm committed to the gospel, why I'm committed to life, why I do what I do. So it's easy to get distracted with busyness, with all the other responsibilities of life. But I do it because I think Christianity is true. And I think Christianity offers the only real worldview of freedom and truth and eternal life. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be wasting my time. Let me ask you this uh, regarding the question of truth. Uh, many of my audience members are skeptics or those in that arena who may identify as nuns. What, when you say truth or that Christianity is true, what do you mean? All I mean is that the main claims of Christ to be God in human flesh, that he walked on earth, that he lived a sinless life, and he resurrected on the third day, those claims match up with reality. So I mean they're just as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Hmm. George Washington was the first president of the United States. Or a water molecule has two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. That's actually what I mean, that the claims of Christianity describe reality. That's a profound claim you're making there. Uh, Imagine one many people have staked their lives upon. Oh, I think that's right. That's some of the research that I've done. And it's not true because people stake their lives on it. I certainly don't want to imply that. But by the way, a Muslim thinks that his beliefs are true. An atheist thinks that his beliefs are true. A Buddhist, a Hindu, on and on. Part of being human is we think our beliefs are true. So the obvious question is then how do we know the Christian claims are actually true? And that's where a lot of the work that you're coming into uh, helps us deal with that, with apologetics and ethics and philosophy in general. In your book, uh, The Beauty of Intolerance, (laughs) that's quite a title, by the way, (laughs) Uh, juxtaposition of words, Uh, you claim that if we truly care about other people, you must agree with their beliefs, values, and lifestyles. The truth claims are equal and as valid as yours. You claim that this hypothesis is false. Please expand on that. Well, part of the shift that we've seen in culture is that tolerance used to mean, I think you're wrong, I disagree with you, but I respect your right, in fact, will fight and die for your right to hold different views than my own. This is what we mean by tolerance. In fact, you can't really tolerate something that you don't think is wrong, otherwise there's nothing to tolerate. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. But now tolerance has become, and you hear it in a lot of other words like, say, inclusion and other kind of hot-button issues of the day. Essentially, tolerance now means that everybody's views are equal, and you have no right to say that your view is superior to anybody else's. In fact, if you say your view is superior, you're the one who's intolerant. You're the one who's a bigot. You're the one who's hateful. And, of course, the irony in this is that many who push this new agenda are saying that their view of tolerance is actually superior and ours is false. So it's just, it's a living contradiction. But our only point is that all beliefs and values are not equal. And in fact, in all honesty, Caldoun, we all know this when we just reflect upon it. Hmm. So if I were to tell you Israel is... A country that is inferior in the way it treats its refugees than, let's say, uh, Germany does in its welcoming of them, uh, making it a claim about that that country's uh, uh, immigration policies that one is better than the other. Uh, many people would claim that that's an intolerant claim to make. Uh, I should say that both of them are just as equal, but <laughs> you're claiming no. <laughs> I, I I am in my right mind politically to say that, especially as an American citizen. I can in some other parts I can't, of course. But in, in evaluating countries, similar to evaluating people, though, but we wouldn't put one person higher than another, uh, ontologically speaking, would we, um, as we do ideas? Well, uh, Greg Coco put it to you this way. He said, be egalitarian regarding people, but elitist regarding ideas, hmm. meaning all people are made in the image of God and have equal dignity and value and worth. You mentioned immigration. We need to treat immigrants with dignity and value and worth. People of different socioeconomic statuses, uh, people of different genders, people of different political positions, and I would argue of different races and of the unborn. This is a Christian position that is rooted in the biblical worldview that we're all made in the image of God. But it doesn't follow that all ideas are equal. Genocide, to take a more extreme example, mm -hmm. is not equal to beliefs about freedom. Racism is not equal to beliefs about, say, equality. So we hear these vibes about tolerance and respecting everybody and don't make judgments, but we all make judgments. We all know there's right and we all know there's wrong. In fact, you can even argue that sometimes it's immoral not to speak up against certain evils of the day. Right. The cowardness of many is staggering of speaking up for the, the, the unborn or those who suffer and, and genocidal issues. Uh, but, Sean, let me ask you, though. In areas of ethics and religion, they're not as quantifiable as, for example, the distinction between a policy on immigration is. Uh, how do you determine, like, if my view on abortion is incorrect in your view is correct in regard to let's say uh the most common mantra thrown out by many people the uh, the life of the mother or the life of the child there are genuine people who disagree on these positions uh, how do you determine which view is more valuable or leading more toward what is more logical than another in areas like okay. that be very careful not to confuse how we know something which is epistemology mm -hmm. If whether or not something is right or wrong, true or false, which is metaphysics. So the difficulty of knowing whether something is true or false 
doesn't change whether or not it is true or whether or not it is false. So whether there is such a thing as right and wrong is a different question from how we start to adjudicate difficult moral questions like, say, abortion or immigration. Mm -hmm. These are totally different questions. So if I may take a step back, you're right that people differ over what they think is right and wrong. But logically speaking, nothing follows from this. Mm-hmm. Nothing falls from this. People can differ over historical facts, scientific facts, theological facts, uh, psychological facts. Nothing logically falls from the fact that people disagree. People disagree in the realm of science. It doesn't mean there's not a scientific truth. People disagree about historical claim. It doesn't mean there's not a historical truth. And people may differ over moral claims. It doesn't follow that there's not a moral truth. Now, With that said, I actually think when people differ over, say, immigration policy or gun policy or the pro-life issue, underlying it is a commitment that both sides have to defending what they think is just, what they think is moral. So I'm unashamedly pro-life. But I don't think pro-choicers are relativists. (laughs) I wouldn't make that argument. Mm -hmm. Rather, pro-choicers are arguing for what they actually think is right for society. They're arguing for what they think is just and merciful and best for women. I just think they're wrong about the facts and have a bankrupt moral system. But I don't assume that they fail to believe in objective morality. In fact, the mere claims against pro-lifers being insensitive and unmerciful, etc., are moral claims against them, which actually reveal that they believe in objective morality. Interesting. Yes, I'm, I'm leaning away from the position to say all the people on the left or even extreme right are relativists because not. They, they do hold to some strong positions in the LGBT issue, the abortion issue, and things of that nature that you just brought up. Uh, they're very absolutist on some of these positions. Um, but yes, but knowing the facts can help us determine whether our ethics is in line. Uh, for example, whether the the fetus uh, or the the, the baby in the womb is actually a human being. Once we have determined the scientific relevance, then our ethics can stem from that. I I think that's right. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, debates on morality are not about the existence of objective moral principles like justice and fairness and courage and mercy. They're differences over the facts. Mm. So is the unborn really a member of the human race? that is a distinct ontological being, a human being from the mother. Mm. Well, that's either true or it's false. And we can actually help know that by looking at the scientific facts. So much of the debate is over the facts, not the existence of right or wrong. But sometimes we do see conflicting moral systems coming into one another. So I think this recent uh, push for, say, infanticide, is because people have bought a moral system about consent. And if you haven't consented to be a mother, even if this child is born, you don't have to protect that child. So consent is held up as the ultimate moral principle and truth that must be protected. Now, on the flip side, you have pro-lifers saying, no, 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 it's not ultimately about consent. This is a human being that's viable outside of the womb. 
It's already alive. It's not a potential life and should be protected. Mm-hmm. So my point is only saying when these come into conflict, it's not relativism versus objectivism. There's difference over the facts, and there's also different moral systems coming into conflict. And we owe it to ourselves to evaluate the moral system that we presuppose. Uh, thank you. Okay, let's go to um, another part here. And you're... In the book, um, your father authored, and you updated, More Than a Carpenter, which I strongly recommend for my, uh, my listeners, there's that trilemma that's mentioned by Lewis. Jesus of Nazareth is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Uh, some of us are familiar with this, others are not. I know in the interest of time, why only these three major subcategories for Jesus? Well, I'm- I'm glad you asked this question, and I actually wouldn't say these are the only three possible categories for Jesus. Major ones, yeah. They're not. It could be legend. It could be that he's, you know, you have, say, the view of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mm -hmm. that he's Michael the Archangel. There are other logically possible positions about Jesus. What the Lord Liar Lunatic argument is, it's a popular way of trying to help people understand Mm -hmm. that Jesus did make claims to be God, and what he claimed about himself has very important implications for his identity and also for eternal life. So it is presented in a popular way as if these are the only three airtight possible Lord, liar, lunatic implications. But I don't think they are. I think there's more than that. I think those are the big three. And they just help people think through that if Jesus actually claimed to be God, then we only have at least so many finite possibilities about who he actually is. And you would claim, of course, as a Christian, you would call him Lord is it primarily because of his miracles? Is it because of his teachings? What is it that you continue to call him Lord for? I actually think it's a number of things. I've been taking students through the Gospel of Mark. And yes, Jesus makes claims in the Gospel of Mark, namely at the end. In chapter 14, he makes it very clear that he references himself, the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 9 as a divine figure. So it's what Jesus claims. Also, you have in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am, which is a reference to how Yahweh revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So Jesus makes divine claims. But it's also what he does. He walks on water, which was a way of saying, I have authority and power over the natural world. He raises people from the dead, saying, I am Lord over life and death. He has the authority within himself to forgive sins, not behalf of, on behalf of somebody else. He could forgive sins himself that are committed against God. Hmm. So he claims to be God. But then he acts in these ways consistent with unique authority that only God has. But then he does miracles, such as the resurrection, rising on the third day in confirmation, and I would argue also fulfilling prophecy that helps us say, wait a minute, he didn't just claim this. He has the credentials, so to speak, to back up the claims that he made and the actions that he did. So it's a multiplicity of different factors that work together. (laughs) I think so. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Logically Faithful. This is Caldoun Swice, your host, and I have with me on the line Sean McDowell. Sean, you've written this um, new book called So the Next Generation Will Know uh, with my friend 
J. Warner Wallace, uh, who's uh, got some brilliant books, by the way, out. What is your hypothesis in this book, and what's the heart behind it? Basically, it's the two of us getting together because we have been parents. He he has kids out of the house. I have three young kids. Okay. We've both been youth pastors in different settings. We speak to tens of thousands of students a year. And I've also been in a Christian school working with students. We have a unique heart and passion for the next generation. And we started to notice a couple things. Number one, that there's new research coming out. Millennials are gone, and there's this new generation, Gen Z. Yeah, Z, yeah. we got to run out of letters. <laughs> exactly, right? That, does, that whole, raises a whole series of interesting questions. We started to think, does ministry look different? Does it look the same? Can we do a ton of research on this generation and then just get a practical guide for anyone who cares about youth, for mentors, teachers, parents, pastors. And it's actually a short book, Caldoon. We didn't want a huge one. We want one people can read pretty briefly. But it's not a, a what to believe. It's a how to have thoughtful conversations with generation, set up trips to influence this generation, okay. how to teach worldview to this generation. So they're really – you might think of it like the book that uh, Greg Coco wrote called Tactics, which mm-hmm. is not – answering apologetic questions but teaching people how to answer apologetics questions so the next generation will know is a handbook guide for how to pass on faith to this next generation yeah, i love that book by uh, coco that was great uh, so give us one for example let's say we have a trailer for a movie give us one of the tips that you have uh, gleamed or one of the nuggets from this book uh, about how to this new generation to touch on. Let me, let me frame it for you in a way I think may be helpful to your audience is one of the things that I actually interact with, especially on the podcast I host with Biola, are a number of people who teach how to build relationships with this generation. And they tend to do sociological, psychological research and talk about the importance of building relationships with this next generation. Right. Then there's a lot of apologists who talk about, here's the arguments you got to make, here's how to teach truth, here's the conferences to send your kids to, here's the books they need to read. And they tend to be very truth-focused and oriented. Right. What we do in this book is we kind of go down the middle, and we say, if we want to teach truth, we must do it through a relational lens, because number one, it's biblical, God is building a relationship with us. Number two, it's effective. But it's not enough to just build relationships. Mormons can build relationships. Atheists can build relationships. Muslims can build. We all can build relationships. It has to be focused on delivering truth. So the framework of this book, by two people known more for being apologists, is how do we teach truth? But we also have as much content intentionally on building relationships with this generation. So I didn't specifically answer your question, but that's the framing I want to get across because my apologist friends often say, kids are losing their faith, just we need to give them better arguments. Mm. And my friends on the other side say, well, we just got to build relationships with kids. No. And Warren and I are saying, no, it's both. <laughs> Jesus came in grace mm. and he came in truth. And we need to deliver both as effectively as we can. Okay, well, let's recommend the book. Ladies and gentlemen, the book, So the Next Generation Will Know. And in your older book, uh, The Fate of the Apostles, I believe this was one of your dissertation, a thesis, if I might? That's right. Yeah. Um, You argued that the early followers of Jesus did not fabricate the stories of Jesus' death and resurrection as hallucinations or um, being forced to to confess a death. Uh, But there was something deeper about The Fate of the Apostles. Expand on what you meant or what your heart was behind that book. 
Well, a common argument that we hear from people is that all the apostles died as martyrs for their faith mm-hmm. and refused to recant under you know, torture. Therefore, the resurrection happened, Christianity is true. Mm. I've heard that argument my whole life. Yes. For my dissertation, I decided to actually research it and ask what the historical data shows. So I didn't do it to prove that the argument works. I actually did it to find out, does the argument work? And if so, how would it be best formulated? And what I found is you can't show that all the apostles died as martyrs. I don't think you can show that most of them did. I think what you can show historically is that the apostles believed that Jesus had appeared to them. They were all willing to suffer and die for that conviction. And some of them actually did die as martyrs, a handful of them, somewhere between maybe four and six of the 14, if you include Paul and James, the brother of Jesus. Okay. Now, this, uh, this doesn't prove Christianity is true. It doesn't overturn the hallucination hypothesis. All it shows, in my mind, is that the apostles didn't make this up. They didn't invent a story to intentionally get themselves threatened, beaten, thrown in prison, and some of them martyred. It doesn't make sense what we know about human nature. So in the book, The Fate of the Apostles, I'm just arguing that their willingness to suffer and die for their belief that Jesus rose from the grave is one piece of a larger argument for the resurrection, and it just shows that they're sincere. Now, the difference is, I'll make this last point and move on, is some people say, well, how about other people that have died for their faiths? Aren't they sincere? And I'll say, sure, they're sincere. But there's a difference between, say, modern radical Muslims who die for their faith, who received all of the beliefs they have at best secondhand from somebody else, Mm -hmm. and the apostles who claim to be eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, contrary to what they expected. So the willingness of the apostles to suffer and die is tied more deeply to the credibility of those claims than any modern-day Muslim martyr would be. Or frankly, if someone came in when I was lecturing and said, you really believe this, Sean, and shot me, all anybody concluded is like, all right, that guy really believed Jesus was risen. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't provide any evidential support for Christianity. Mm-hmm. It would just point to me. But the apostles are the founders of Christianity. They saw or claimed to see Jesus with their own eyes, and they're willing to suffer and die for this at personal expense. I can't convince myself they made this up for personal gain. Hmm. Okay. There's a lot there. In the uh, in your work and doing apologetics for was it a couple decades now? Is that where you've been doing it? Um, yeah, give or take. Yeah, uh, there are a bunch of objections that keep raising coming to the surface. Uh, one of the toughest I've found in my experience, Sean, is. Um, not necessarily a problem of evil, but the silence of God or the dark night of the soul that many believers themselves actually raise more than skeptics do uh, during the time of the silence of God and the uh, struggles and the pain of, of life. One of the main focuses of the show Logically Faithful is to equip believers to navigate through the dark waters of life using the evidence for the faith that we do have and to welcome those who have objections so we can address those. How do you deal with that objection of the silence or the hiddenness of God, as we say in like philosophical circles? Well, I agree with you. That's a very real question. And you're right. It is kind of a version of the problem of evil. Why doesn't God act if he's powerful and good and can stop it? 
And I, I would say I address this differently emotionally than I might address it intellectually. Okay. So a lot of Christians who raise this, raise this aren't asking just purely for evidence and logic and proof. They're, they're hurting and they're suffering and they're, they're wondering where God is. And this is a very personal way that we pray with people, listen to people, spend time with people, mourn with people. There's a pastoral response that's required, that's all I'm saying, when people are hurting like this. Now, intellectually, if somebody's willing to have that conversation, ultimately, I'm going to bring it back to the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the heart of our faith. If Jesus didn't raise, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is false. If Jesus did raise, it proves his deity and shows that Christianity is true. But what's powerful about the resurrection is that God has broken into time, that the renewal has begun. Mm. At some point in the future, when Jesus comes back, we are promised that everything will be made right. It doesn't promise us that there won't be silence or God won't feel abandoned. I mean, just read the Psalms. This is a part of the Christian faith to Uh feel like God has left us. There's nothing new here. It just hits home differently when it's in our own life. So I put back the resurrection and say, just think about the apostles. They thought Jesus was the one. They traveled with him somewhere between two and three years. And then he's humiliated and he's shamefully murdered on a cross. And they thought he was the one. They're in despair about this. But it's at that moment that God was doing his greatest good. So if Jesus has risen from the grave, Mm -hmm. God has not let go, metaphorically speaking, of the steering wheel. He's in control. And he promises one day to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So I could keep preaching here. I apologize for that. But that's where I would go with somebody who's wrestling with the silence of God. I would listen to him. I would try to understand the heart of the issue, pastorally respond if I can, befriend this person, just make sure they're being cared for, because that can be a really painful question to ask. But when they're open to it and want to explore it, I would start by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, saying, what's the evidence? What does this actually mean for us now and in the future? And I think knowing and believing that can be transformative. Absolutely. And I know that wounds heal wounds, Sean. Sometimes the wounds that we've been through or the pain that we go through can be used as an avenue God can use to restore and help others. We have no idea what he can use to do that. And he will ultimately wipe those tears. Thank you for those encouraging words. Um, We have to wait for his hand that will do that. And it is a pierced hand, is it not? It is. That's right. <laughs> it is. Okay. Hey, I appreciate your being on the show. It really means a lot to me. You've, uh, you've been one of my heroes in, in my own journey. Hey, you're, you're too kind, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Any final words? Um, keep up the good work, buddy. That's all I got now. You asked me everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite a reservoir there. Okay. Well, Sean, again, I appreciate you being on. See you, brother. All right. Bye-bye.